this is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to sessions from the media rumble 2018 thank you i've been told that uh, this session is competing with anurag kashyap in the next room and those of you who didn't get tempted by anurag kashyap thank you for staying back we'll try and make it worth your while once again let me introduce our panelists vikas pandey senior digital producer at bbc india and a virtual reality filmmaker he was formerly with the he was formerly uh, the south asia reporter for the press association Chandeep Shetty is the CEO of Quintype, a technology startup that builds products in the digital media space. Some of the leading digital distributors, such as Bloomberg, Quint, Swaraja, and Fortune India, use his platform. Francesca Panetta is the executive editor of Virtual Reality at the Guardian. Uh, she's she's a multi-award-winning digital artist and journalist, and has led immersive innovation at the Guardian for the last ten years. Samir Patel is the founder and CEO and publisher at Scroll.in, an independent news venture. Before Scroll, Samir founded ACK Media, which you might know in its previous avatar as Amar Chitrakatha, which grew to become India's largest children's media company. Samir, first question for you. You're the only man in the jacket and yeah, formally dressed like me, so you get the first question. So Marshall McLuhan, media guru, philosopher, said that the medium is the message. What message is the medium, especially digital media, giving out these days? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's a very good message, but I think it giving a message of uh, you know some kind of attention deficit, uh, and uh, it's probably because the way we consume media has changed, and it, I I think the medium being the message. Uh, Is like at this point half true in the sense it is the message, but it's no longer a sufficient description of it because we are so long we are not separated from our media even for a minute. Right? Um, so maybe the receiver of the message is also become part of this whole cycle. Right? So media was a message kind of work when there was mass media and we switched off things, but now we don't even switch them off. So I don't know to what extent this sort of statement. Nice. The media is the consumer. Yeah. Right. So. Francesca, similar question to you. Somebody talked about attention deficit disorder, and this is something we keep hearing uh, from everybody who's in the digital news space saying attention spans are 30 seconds. Now they're down to 22. Soon we'll be at goldfish level at five seconds. And yet, I'm going to do a quick poll here. How many in this room have seen Sacred Games? How many have seen Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones and Sacred Games. Game of Thrones. People have watched 60 hours of it, and Sacred Games. Ten hours, and many of how many of you binge watched it more than one episode at a time? So here's attention span. I'm willing to watch something for ten hours if it's interesting, but not for thirty seconds if it's not interesting. Is this what modern media is talking about when they speak about attention deficit disorder? That the creators are merely not making things interesting enough? I think it depends on the medium that's being used, um, as well as as well as the attention, because I think it's a really good example of how people are prepared to stick with content. Um, the virtual reality content we've been making at the Guardian is, on average, about ten minutes long, and people really stick with it, and their attention actually can't be. Um, taken anywhere else because you've got these kind of large goggles on your face. You're forced to be not checking your phone and your social media accounts. And what's been interesting is the studies that have been done, which show the impact. Uh, the BBC did a fantastic report, which showed that the impact from this kind of immersive technologies is significantly larger than the other um, kind of fast-consumed technologies. So I think that it's both 
the content, the quality of the content, as you allude to, but also the medium itself. Shetty, Shetty, next question for you. Ever since the printing press, every innovation in media has been hailed as the next big thing. The printing press is going to change everything. Television is going to change everything. The internet is going to change everything. And today we are saying digital is going to change everything. Why is WhatsApp or digital media any different from the printing press in terms of innovation quality? Is this era any different? Actually, this era is a lot different. So yes, each one had leap, a leapfrog moment in that time. Printing press had a leapfrog moment at that point in time. And now what we see in digital media, particularly in WhatsApp and all of the social channels, is the reach that you can get and the scale that you can get is a lot more than anything else. I could be traveling around the world but still be reading news, vernacular news from anywhere out there, right? That is a game changer. And something that WhatsApp is doing and mainly with social as well is now that uh, your consumers are becoming your distributors themselves. It's not just your distributor based on paper channels or whatever distribution channel you're using. Your consumers as they like news, they like to share it. And they internally get that reward point saying that I've read this news, I would like to share this kind of news. So that your distribution channel starts growing exponentially in that sense. So that's the game changer. And quite often people are distributing it without having read it. I get a whole bunch of Twitter links saying read this 17 page article long form to understand new ads which most people who forward it haven't actually read it. Absolutely. Yes. It's just for positioning to make me seem like a cool intellectual yes. that I forwarded that. It's always the Well, let me bring in Vikas Pandey. Vikas, question for you is simple. Name the top five technologies in your experience that are going to impact news production and dissemination in the next few years. I'll be a little biased. I'll say we are in AR. Okay. Uh, um, right from the top. And for those of us who don't know what AR actually means. So, I mean, how many of you have experienced any kind of virtual reality or AR content? Most Indian news channels sound like virtual reality these days. We switch on the TV <laughs> at 9 o'clock, so I don't know about that. So, I won't go into that. So, quite a few of you are aware. It's basically a, a medium which allows you to be completely immersed into a story. Uh, if you're watching something on TV or documentary, you are a passive observer. But what VR allows you to, to be inside the story. So what VR allows you to be inside the story. And no other medium at the moment is capable of doing that. And then it makes you think, it makes you empathize, it makes you connect with your characters like no other medium. So I'll just stick to VR and AR. Alright, so VR and AR, two key technologies. AR, of course, is augmented reality. Can you tell us how augmented reality works? So basically, VR is something you film, like 360 content that you see on social platforms or you experience in your headset. AR, as the name suggests, augmented reality, where you create a scenario. So I can talk about a BBC film that we did called uh, Traffic, where we recreated journey of a girl from Syria to Europe and what she had to go through. Now, in one of the scenes in that film where she was kept in a really small room in Europe and she was sexually assaulted. Now, it can be trivial if you want to recreate, but we did recreate and a lot of people who watched it told us later on that they had to think really long and hard that how could a human being survive in a 4x4 four four room. Now, no other medium can make it happen and that sort of an impact AR can have on really important stories like Syria. Sami, same question to you but slightly different. You're an investor in news and media. What's on your radar? What technologies are on your radar yeah. that could sort of uh, uh, render what you do obsolescent? 
Yeah, so I don't think of, I mean, I have other investors, so I'm not the investor. Uh, I just That's what all investors say. I'm not the only investor. There no, are others. I'm not even the, the, any investor. I'm just the person who has spent all the time trying to think of it. So really not the investor. Um, so, you know, think of me as the But, uh, yeah. So I think, I mean, I will differ a little bit on this. Uh, my sense is there are two big problems. I will start not with the technology, but the problem that media has to solve. Um, there seem to be two big challenges. Uh, since we are talking about news uh, in tech, it's not fully relevant to it, but still relevant. Which is how does one make money in this new digital media landscape and what are the relevant technologies there. And the second is how do you, um, I would say, regain the trust of the audience and also uh, you know, the onslaught of fake news and deep fakes in the future. So to me, those are two gigantic problems and uh, technology directly plays into some of them. Uh, and if I had to look forward uh, from here, I would say, you know, what are the kind of things? So, in my way of thinking, uh, you know, if I go back to the first question, how does one make money from uh, a media in general, but also news media? Um, I think there are two, three big things happening there. One, especially in India, there's this new payment infrastructure that has come up that makes it much easier. And I think you'll see lots of smaller, especially uh, publishers being able to tap that. So, that's interesting. Uh, second is that uh, I think advertisers uh, already have very big platforms uh, to advertise on. I don't think anybody here will uh, have the scale in anywhere dialing Facebook or Google or so on. So publishers will have to do the kind of thing these two are doing in terms of offering immersive, uh, deep uh, experiences that you can't get on other platforms. So in that sense, this is how in my mind it ties in. Uh, it's not just the storytelling part of it. Uh, it's also how do we how do we offer an experience that's not on the platform, which are like gigantic, maybe on the scale. I think the other interesting part of the trust bit, which is directly related to the news room, uh, is that we have to see deep fakes, deeper fakes, deepest fakes, whatever. We have to see a wave of that. Um, what does all this mean? Fake, deep fake? Uh, you know. So the the notion. Okay. So deep fake is the notion that uh, you know we have seen. It's very easy to compose a fake uh, text news. Uh, now you can make videos that are fake, where real people seem to be talking, right? And the most famous uh, thing that was viral was Obama saying something which he never said. Right? You can synthesize voice, you can make uh, use videos, and we are going to see a lot of that. And uh, you know, in the long run, maybe people will get skeptical. My belief is that ultimately the only solution to fake news will be when people get skeptical of all news, right? And so then, the, so the thing Aren't is, we here problem. already? Aren't we there already? I don't think so. I think people, uh, again, I, I don't think that everybody, I mean, I, fundamentally, I still think that the citizen uh, or the leader uh, is our only real solution, long term solution to figuring out fake news. Right? In that, the newsrooms can use technology and other things to uh, you know, signal that, like deep watermarking. Uh, there could be other ways of, uh, I'm going to try and avoid the word blockchain, but there could be other technologies that, uh, you know, because I don't, I don't know what it means now. But essentially, uh, trust in information, whether it's news or anything, is going to be heavily undermined, right? And, uh, you know, newsrooms will be unable to function. I mean, BBC had a great example recently of some fake survey going out, which uh, was not done by the BBC at all uh, in Karnataka. Uh, and this is going to happen across the board all the time. So, you know, if I had to think about technology, those are the things. Let's ask the techie.
Chidip, is there a technological solution to fake news, deep fake news, deeper fake news and deepest fake news? It is emerging. Uh, you are seeing tools like Google's game review that is coming up. A lot of publishers are adopting that where you can challenge any other site that is published fake news. Right? And what we are also seeing is uh, AI which used to be high a few years ago is getting to be mainstream right now. This is real impact in what is being created. And you, you can start using that to start suppressing at least the distribution of fake distribution of fake news. Facebook is already doing that. And we would see that any distribution channel, WhatsApp for example, will start looking at it shows you forwarded, it could show you suspicious, all of that could start happening. A simple thing that you could see is you see that existing uh, existing organizations with a legacy will not stake their reputation on fake news. You will see the mischief coming mainly from new organizations. And you could start ranking and let new organizations really earn their stripes before they go mainstream and get such a large distribution. That's how you will start acting fake, uh, fake news. Now let me throw you an ethical dilemma type question. You are a platform person. You are not really a newsmaker. Let's say assume I am your client, I pay you a lot of money to use your platform, but I use your platform to create and distribute fake news. Is your stance on this A model that I am your client, that you are not creating fake news, but I am, but I am your client and I use your platform or do you, are you active saying no, you can't use my platform for something like this? That is a very interesting question. Uh, yes, um, we are, you cannot take a clear stance on this as, as something somebody mentioned which is can opinions be considered as fake news in that sense? Right? So you don't know where you can clearly classify. If you're misrepresenting facts, that is something that we would not want to partner with. That's our own reputation would go down with that. So that's not something that we would like to partner with. Why would your reputation as a platform go down? Um, if I'm a news outlet and I use your platform, who knows that I'm using your platform to consume in, in terms of the consumer? It's the consumer. Like we know that we are using our platform. I think it's it's more to do with that. Irrespective of the fact that we have a client vendor relationship, you would you would intervene and say don't do this? I think it's a grey line and a clear black and white part. When you are in the black and white part where you are misrepresenting facts, that would be crossing the line. When you are the, the opinion article, you really can't go anything more. That's your entire to your opinion. Francisca, similar question to you. From where you sit at The Guardian, how serious is the problem of fake news and what do you at The Guardian do about it? Well, I mean, we've got a very establish method of journalism and of fact-checking. Um, so we apply the same standards of journalism as we always have done. Um, that's why we employ and train the journalists in-house that we do. Is the solution then a human solution? Do you see a technological solution to the problem of fake news? Not to fake news. I see technological um, things like AI being taken into newsrooms for sure. That's not something that we do at The Guardian at the moment. I don't see that being a solution to fake news. I mean, that's mainly data. AI is, you know, comes through data mainly. That's not um, going to solve fake news. So, not, not really. And you've been heading innovation for the last 10 years at The Guardian. Give us a sense of how you've seen the tech landscape change over the last 10 years, how technologies have changed and what's likely to happen in the next few. Well, I came to The Guardian 11 years ago um, when we were just starting up podcasting there and I ran our podcasting team, moved into kind of interactive, immersive, um, uh, interactive journalism, then into VR. Um, I think what, from my personal perspective, 
what's interesting is how long it takes for the technologies to really become mainstream. So it was obvious that podcasting was a good idea 11 years ago, but the technology, we had iPods, we had to transfer MP3s onto them. It was really, it was a real faff. It's only now where you have them on your phones, you can stream programs that, that actually now people actually know what podcasts are and downloading them. And it's the same with AR and VR. It's early, early technology now. These big clunky headsets are not going to be adopted really quickly. But I think what's interesting for journalism is what it affords the organization. So it means that we can be telling our stories in different ways. So, um, I guess, from my perspective, um, it just takes longer than you think for these things. I mean, we're talking small scale here. We're talking a decade, like you were talking about, you know, the revolution of the newspaper industry. Um, that also took a while to get going. It's just we're impatient now. We expect, we see VR, we expect everyone to have the headsets the next year. When it says 2016 is going to be the year of VR, everyone's going to have these headsets. They don't. They're not going to. And it's going to be the same with smart speakers. It's going to be the same with robotics. It just takes a while for these technologies to really develop, and it also takes a while for journalism to adopt them appropriately. All right. Let's talk about adopting these technologies. Like <clears throat> Francesca pointed out, VR still comes clums with clunky headsets, uh, whether it's Oculus or it's the HoloLens or, or, or the bold experiment with Google Cardboard. Because my next question to you, one of the big drivers in, in let's let's call it Internet 2.0, which is uh, video, Skype, chatting. The two big drivers were in the earlier round of the Internet was war. The Cold War pushed us to develop the Internet and pornography drove a lot of innovations in video, video chatting. What's going to drive the innovations in VR and AR? Is it going to be porn and war again? There's no straight answer to this, as Francesca said, every year it's like 2016 is going to be the year of VR. I've been listening to it since 2015. It hasn't happened. But I totally agree, you have to be uh, uh, patient with technology. In Indian context, I can talk about a lot of newsrooms are still reluctant to invest in VR. And the reason is for editors, there is no clear takeaway. Like if we do a VR film, where the numbers are going to come from? There aren't that many expert studios who can produce good films. So there is clear lack of content. Having said that, we at the BBC, wherever we have taken our VR films in film festivals or in colleges, people have been quite excited. And for a lot of them, our films were their first VR experience. And after coming out, they just there was one question which was unanimous, where can we consume more content coming from India? So both things have to go hand in hand. It has to be tech becoming simpler and content creators adopting to the technology. Uh, they both have to go hand in hand. It can't be that headsets become cheaper and less clunky, but there's not content. So it had, they both have to go hand in hand. I also think it's probably going to be um, about tools rather than content. You know, it's going to be communicating with your family who are abroad and feeling like you're in the same room. You know, most of the internet that we use is functional tools. It's not about full content. And so um, I think that when we can start to be in the same place as the people that we want to hang out with and to use a technology like that, then it'll become very mainstream. But just expecting expecting publishers to be the ones who pioneer this and get everyone to use it, I think is unrealistic. Can I just add yeah, one go ahead, point? I, I, I agree with it. Um, we experiment a bit with FIFA World Cup and we had some of the matches being broadcast in VR. It was a bit clunky to begin with, but most people who watched had only positive things to say. So I agree with it. It's, 
when it becomes part of your daily life, you know, whether you're interacting with your friends or watching your sports, just like mobile phones are today, you will see tech getting simpler and it will change. At least I believe it will. So we part of this VR and AR in news solution looking for a problem? Yeah. We have the tech and we have the headsets and now we want to know what to do with it. Yeah. Almost every science fiction film you see has got a beautiful hologram where you click a button and an entire news landscape appears in front of you. You can walk through it, touch it, turn it. How long before that becomes reality and we bypass headsets altogether that you can perceive it with your plain eye and ear? So, we, I think, so let me answer the question slightly. I think the biggest AR, uh, uh, the biggest AR success uh, in a way, and I don't know if you will define it as AR, was Pokemon. Um, because it sort of mixed the digital world with the uh, the physical world in a way. That didn't take any time for adoption. Nobody yeah. needed patience within so a matter of days. But, so yeah, so if at all I have to like, right now I, I think AR and VR is the sort of solution looking for a problem in my techniques when it comes to news or even uh, you know, mass media. Uh, but I think the two things that will have to, or maybe three because she said one of them is the tool, is when it meets the mobile phone. Uh, and when it's very, very simple. Like, I don't, it needs to be uh, things that are useful, uh, things that you can use on the phone, uh, and it's invisible. You don't even know if they are. Most people probably don't think of Pokemon as AR, but to me, that was the most cleverest sort of application of it. So I think we need dramatically simpler uh, on the phone, and then maybe something. I think it's probably post mobile phone, isn't it? You know, I think it's probably post mobile phone. It's post -mobile. That's, that's what I we see don't it know as what being. That device or that ecosystem is going to be. Whether it's wearables or, you know, whatever. So, Chidi, what's going to be the killer app that's going to uh, boost the adoption of VR and AR in traditional media, specifically news media? What's going to be the Pokemon Go for the news industry? Um, I don't know. I have not seen something that's so immersive right now. I think Guardian is doing a fantastic job with their Guardian VR, where you, you are in a position to actually experience the entire thing. Right? I think travel industry is clearly using VR um, for putting people in a particular place. So you, you could be in Bahia or Jordan and actually see the river um, out there. And exactly echoing at what everybody said, I think it's the problem with the clunky headsets. The moment you could have VR with just putting on your goggles, I think it would go with the Well, Google tried that with the Google Glass and failed miserably at it. It's is, is it an early attempt or? I think it's heavily used. You look at smartphones back in 2002, right? they, they started well early on, right? Nothing changed until iPhone came. And 3D cinema released in the 80s field, but came back in the 2000s with a less clunky avatar. Alright, let me go back to Vikas Pandey. I'm now going to go into audio. We have technologies like voice search or what's called ubiquitous listening. And there were recent reports of uh, Barbie dolls which listened to children's talk and transmitted it back to an evil Barbie server. And parents were concerned that why are dolls listening to what my children are saying? Where does that line where is that line between the convenience of having voice search and having uh, devices in your house that can listen to you versus devices that are just simply snooping on you and giving you the kind of news that you want to hear? I think like everything else, we have to just remember one word, responsibility. So whether you're making VR part, I think from content creators, you know, um, it can be really empowering tool whether it's like we are also experimenting, experimenting with uh, voice and we ran a few internal exp uh, experiments and we found that a lot of time, for example, if you're listening to a news story and you don't know the background, you have the ability to pause it and say, tell me what happened in Assam in 2013 and you can come back to your main story 
or you can ask supplementary questions. So it can be empowering, but of course responsibility has to be there. How much data you are using, how you are using it to inform what sort of news you want to provide, how you want to present your content. So with any piece of technology, if any newsroom is responsible enough in how you're going to use it and how far you're willing to go, I think there shouldn't be any problem. That's easy for you to say. You're the BBC. You're very responsible. But who's going to adjudicate responsibility? Won't that be a big ethical issue? You're saying people should be responsible. What happens if they're not? Well, then it boils down to individual content creators, individual journalists. Because even when we are talking about things like fake news, we are all in the same space. But I always ask this question, how much we as individual journalists are doing to counter fake news? Like um, he mentioned this BBC survey thing. Uh, and I spotted early in the morning and by afternoon, within the BBC not a lot of people were tweeting it out that this is fake, it had to be some other website to report it. So it ultimately boils down to individual responsibility and then companies and media companies. It, every piece has to work together to come to it. Alright, so we have fake news once again. Samir, another question on fake news. So I pick up a, a really good newspaper, not scroll, I still pick up physical newspapers, I read scroll on my phone. And I see an ad for a washing powder that claims to wash whitest, right? The newspaper has not verified that claim. Uh, the advertiser doesn't take too much effort to tell me what his or her background research is, what the claims are based on. So for all intents and purposes, it is fake news and a newspaper carries it, but puts it inside a border and says, this is news, but this I don't really care about. But I'm going to sell both of both in the same page at the same time. Is it all advertising fake news? And why then is fake news such a big deal? If a political party wants to embed that inside a news article and is willing to pay the price, what is the material philosophical difference between the two? Well, I mean, I think the answer is in your question, right? Because most people know the difference between an ad uh, and what is not. They expect not to be an ad. Uh, in fact, um, it's interesting you gave this example. One of the earliest newspapers first happened because, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember the history of it in the 1890s and 19, early 1900s when the newspaper boom happened in the US. Um, the first uh, investigative reporting was about uh, fake advertisement for your kind of this product which whitens your teeth or something and it brought the newspaper down with it. And the separation of you know ads and um, uh, editorial content started. So fake news is not new. Uh, we've always had this problem. Uh, I think advertising and labeled advertising is a very easy way for most people to understand this is advertising and this is not. Um, I think if, if I take a step back, I think the, the challenge is that, I mean, I will give the uh, example of how we, I mean, think of fake news or bad information or even information as a public health problem. Uh, and if you think of the public health, uh, problem which we solved over a very long period of time it had it required many moving parts to come into play. Right? It was not like we, like saying that okay some algorithm should solve it or some tech to solve it is like saying we should one pill should solve all these things. Absolutely. Right? Uh, you if you think of it as a public health problem and let me flop this analogy a little bit because this is a little complicated. Three four big things had to evolve before we could fight you know the biological infections. Uh, you needed to have uh, patient education, washing of hands was far more important in solving than in any medical food and medicine. I still think that our real uh, thing is to educate and keep sort of reminding citizens. Um, that's one. 
Second, you had uh, hospitals and all other kinds of treatment and things that happen. To me, the equivalent is we have editors' guild, we have lots of organizations. I don't know why the Press Information Bureau would not regularly uh, debunk false uh, news that at least they agree is false. Right? Uh, there may be many other institutions that can be retrofitted to perform the functions of you know, looking at fake news. Um, then you had other conventions like you have the ad council in your particular example. You have other conventions that have emerged. There is no perfect solution. Uh, and then at the back of it, there is lots of research. Obviously, there are uh, pharmaceutical companies trying to uh, you know, solve this reason. Uh, I think what is happening with the fake news and bad information problem is, I think news media is a tiny fraction of it. Like, a lot of fake news has nothing to do with news at all. Mm -hmm. like, um, and uh, then the other thing is the last thing, uh, first blame problem. Like, so it's the, you know, whatever the latest technology, WhatsApp is responsible for it. Uh, and I think we need to look at it as a much broader thing and it takes some sort of, uh, and again, it, I don't think there is any single part, but there are very obvious big parts that today could play a role uh, in sort of fighting it, right? So, so I sort of long... No, no, I like the public health analogy. I think it fits perfectly. Uh, it took that doctor, I think his name is Samuel Weiss, the Swiss doctor, about 40 years to convince doctors to wash their hands. Yeah. Right? It took yeah. 40 years to convince medical professionals that not washing hands transmits diseases. And he single-handedly reduced, I think, uh, uh, childbirth deaths yeah. because of his persistence. But back to you, Francesca. How is news regulated in the UK? Is there a government? He spoke about the public health system, public health analogy and the ecosystem that you need. Vikas spoke about individual responsibility. How is news regulated and should it be regulated any differently? Um, this is outside my particular area of expertise because I, I look at virtual reality and, and emerging technologies and we're very much work within the Guardian in ecosystem. We have lawyers who help us make sure that we are not, uh, libelous, um, and so, you know, we very much hold ourselves to account. Um, so yeah, the government making sure that we're not, um, that we're not, uh, libeling anyone and our own systems of, of values. And clearly you haven't gotten into any trouble with the government and the Ofcom hasn't uh, <laughs> made that call to you. But right, let me move to the next question for you. Uh, in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, I remember multiple people tweeting about newspapers and I think the Guardian was referenced saying that uh, you talk about Cambridge Analytica and the targeting of people and understanding their political tastes and only serving them up. But the Guardian's advertising and marketing team also targets readers of the Guardian for admittedly more benign reasons. One of the things that you do is you ask people to donate if they like the content of the Guardian to keep journalism alive. How is that targeting any different and is targeting the reader a concern for you? Um, we don't target people as in find out their demographics and send them specific adverts. We do advertise for contributions on almost every single page of the Guardian. I mean, like all newspapers, like, like the whole media, we are struggling to find new revenue models. So for the last few years, we've been looking at whether we can keep ourselves open, so make it free to everyone to be able to read and watch and listen to, um, but whether we can be supported by the people who read our content. So we're currently investigating what that kind of donations model looks like. We're very, very clear when we advertise saying, we're very glad you've come to our site. Thank you for reading our paper. If you like our journalism, please give us money. 
And the Guardian, of course, is an old and venerable institution, and you're in the most, I'd say, modern wing of that institution with Innovation ER and ER. How do you teach old dogs new tricks? How do your veteran journalists cope with you pushing them to do stories in VR and ER? Are they resisting you to the nail? That's an interesting question and, and something I've seen evolve over the decade that I've been in the organization. Um, when I started up, one of my first jobs was to train everyone in how to use microphones, how to record pieces, how to make little radio features for our podcasts. Um, now, then, you know, we got them presenting little TV pieces for our video, and now I'm working with them on VR pieces. And I think what I've found throughout all of those different um, mediums is that some journalists love it. They All they want to do is come up and be on a video or get involved in a VR project. Some people have found themselves natural radio presenters but hate to be in front of the camera. Some are really natural in front of the camera. I just don't think you can say... I, I would say as someone coming into a 200-year-old newspaper and trying to do the kind of work that I do is, is to be pretty flexible. Don't expect all your journalists to become radio producer, pre presenters immediately or understand VR, but to, to try and get to know individuals. Um, we've got a wonderful science writer who just understood, she understood what VR was about and she came to us with a piece around forensics. She said, what happens if we make a crime scene and you have to figure it out using um, finding out the latest bits of forensics technology? You know, she understood it. She understand that VR is a game. It's experiential. Um, but she didn't know then how to like make it, but she just understood it. But other, other journalists don't. So I think you need to, to work with the people that are in your organization. Because Pandey, same question for you at the BBC, teaching old dogs new VR tricks. Difficult challenge or cakewalk or somewhere in between? Yes and no. Um, when we started, I think the first time in 2015, I mentioned that we need to do something in the VR space in India. We were already doing some bits in the UK. It was difficult. I, I sort of personally, the strategy I use is when you're speaking to editors, people who are not into VR spaces, you offer some sort of solution. You could just go and say, oh, this is a new bit of technology and we got to use it. The response often is lukewarm. But you say, this is going to solve this problem. For example, we are known to be really old, you know, laid-back organization, but if we do VR, we will kind of be accepted as an organization which is trying new techniques, especially in India. So that's a solution to a problem that every journalist will talk about in India. Oh, BBC is known for radio, so laid-back and younger audiences are not coming. And here is a solution to it. They will warm up to the idea much more quicker than just saying, okay, there's this new tech and we must experiment with it. So you offer a solution and people warm up to it. What's the average age of your team? Right now, after we've expanded a lot in four new Indian languages, I have to say it's 30. Earlier, it used to be 50. It used to be 50, now to 30. All right, that's the curse of this millennial juggernaut. Everybody wants to hire millennials, target millennials. The rest of us seem to be... It's teasing. not bad. I have to say, you know, I have met a lot of, you know, uh, journalists who have been around for 20 years, really warming up to the idea of VR and 25-year-olds saying, ah, this is not going anywhere, it will fizzle out like one of those things, I don't want to do it. So, it's really not dependent on, you know, age, it depends on individuals. Right. Okay, we have another 10 or 15 minutes, but I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience before I get concluding remarks from the panel. So, if you have a question, now's your time to ask it. No hands up? Yes. Hello. Um, so, uh, uh, first of all, introducing myself. I'm myself Deepit. I'm one of the founders of a news app called InShorts. 
um so uh, my question is that like we've always seen that uh, media organizations tend to uh, like when there are new formats for media consumption available to users media organizations kind of uh, there's a trail like there's a big delay in them adopting it so how can uh, media organizations prepare themselves to be more agile because the space of technology innovation or format innovation will only speed up from now on so how can media organizations or traditional media organizations make themselves more agile when it comes to uh, culturally more agile when it comes to adopting new formats all right i'm going to throw this question to a member in the audience so we have r jagannathan in the audience he's worked in both traditional media and in modern media and he's an old school journalist retrained in the new school if you can get the mic to jaggi here jaggi would you take uh, care to take a crack at that question i think um, uh, there are different formulae i think one of the ways to do it is to have a lot of people outside your media organization who are specialists in something and you can also have people internally who can do different things and different things i think we are going to move towards a gig economy so i think increasingly i think organizations will have as many people outside it as people inside it so you don't necessarily have to train the old dogs to do new tricks but you need to get uh, new, new dogs, dogs from the outside old tricks also yeah. all right sami same question to you yeah this old joke that you know companies don't innovate markets do and uh, so but i think my addition to jackie's point is the old dog don't learn new tricks then they would be no old dog uh, market so, will force the old dogs yeah, to learn the I new tricks enough of a pressure like that um but i do think it is a specific question for a specific company yeah but i think overall we need not worry uh, about the uh, readers getting the innovation it will happen and inshorts is a modern technology company why are you concerned about traditional <laughs> media companies you're the one who you're the one who's destabilizing the traditional media companies they should learn you have to talk to them unfortunately right. so you need still need to negotiate with them yeah but the, i think this question is a really interesting one because um you know i think large organizations tend to go into these things you know very wholeheartedly right we're going to do video now we're going to have 40 video producers in and we're not often using these kind of agile techniques which i think we should be so i think looking at the kind of sprint methodologies who we're having in teams working together whether you separate all the developers from all the journalists whether you have small teams experimenting i think is a really good idea because i think otherwise we can end up investing huge amounts in new different types of technology with without um you know which is which is a huge risk so i think we can be learning from uh, places outside journalism to to be trying to figure this out Yeah, Jyoti, go ahead. Clearly, a popular question. Everybody wants to take a crack at that. Um, so, if you are a very large uh, media organization, very likely that you would have a big development team doing all of this, right? But we do see that, as Professor um, Jaggi said, said there will be a lot of parts that are given out to partners, some parts which are internal that you are uh, looking at, your design, your experience to users, all of that is something that publishers want to control. But there will be lots of platforms. There will be the WordPress is increasing with number of plugins. There will always be different types of platforms that help you be agile. We at Quintet are also doing something similar for here. There's our publishing, and we would see that publishers particularly will have a plethora of options to start getting on onto this format. And all of these, the tech part of it, there will be partnerships with anyone who's trading. And the creators will be the Google, the Facebook, the innovators, or there with different formats. And you will automatically have this when you. 
keep that across all publishers. That will be much faster than each publisher building it for themselves. Yeah, yes, two more questions, sir. Can we get a mic across? Yeah, go ahead. One thing, uh, isn't the fact that uh, uh, platforms are becoming more powerful than the voices that they purvey, whether it's a Google or one of those, Facebook or anything, they are actually becoming the new media uh, platform, media, they are becoming media basically. Huh? But doesn't that worry you that uh, it can actually kill every media, every kind of media because you're all now dependent on these guys to do anything you want to do? Samir? So Facebook, Google, WhatsApp, which started as pipeline companies or platform companies are now de facto media advertising content companies. So, I mean, I think A, that is definitely true, right? So, I mean, the big reality for most media companies is that while advertising is increasingly going to the digital, 80-90% of this goes to the top three. Um, and and uh, but I think we are at a different point now. So, I think even that has played out and it's very clear. So, whoever now is remaining in the media field has to essentially figure out what their role is. And I think there is a role. Um, I think these distribution companies themselves will probably uh, want to rethink their role as we saw with Facebook uh, in distributing media. Um, but I think uh, we will go back to the old uh, situation where you need to have an audience. You don't, you can't talk, talk about traffic. You need to have somebody who wants to read Jaggi or wants to read Vivek. Uh, uh, and uh, I think that is not going to change. Uh, I don't think that fundamentally these platforms are producing anything anybody wants to read. Maybe they want to see some photos and videos. Um, so I think the whole role of media uh, remains. The question is how do you make it work when most of your money is out of the system. So, Vivek? Hey, you know, uh, fantastic discussion. So congratulations on that. Uh, you know, you guys talked about augmented reality and virtual reality. Now, Indian media houses, if you look at, uh, are yet to move on to, you know, something as basic as a podcast. Okay. And, uh, you know, if you ask journalists to do a short video, there is huge resistance. Editors are not ready for it. I mean, you know, Jaggi here is a very, you know, he's a dynamic, flexible editor, in, open for new technology. But most editors are extremely insecure about, you know, people doing all these things. And so, I mean, you know, we've sort of talked about all this, but I don't see it happening. I mean, this is an Indian context, perfectly so let, Indian context. Let me qualify that question. When Sri Devi died, almost every news channel virtually recreated the bathtub, her floating body, the glass of wine. If they had access to 3D technology and VR, you would have actually, you would have been in that bathroom while Sri Devi died. While they don't do it for important stories, they would do it for weirdly flamboyant stories like that. It was. I'm not commenting on the tackiness or the aesthetic quality of it, but we came pretty close to a virtual reality experience with anchors being in that bathroom, observing that bathtub, observing where she could have cracked her skull, where she died, how many, how many seconds it took for her to drown, a weird level of morbid curiosity. So maybe it's going to be stories like that that's going to drive editors to say, this is going to bring in an, an abnormal number of morbid viewership. So that's why we're going to do it. Back to you, Sunny, if you want to take a crack at that. Yeah, so I think there is a three-part answer to that. I think one um, is this, the classic model of everything and all services, you know, this demand and supply. And the challenge in India is to create supply before there is demand, which is fundamentally something you have to do in India, uh, is difficult because people do not fund it, right? So one reason is just purely economic. 
there is no provable uh, demand for podcast to take one example so i happen to know a bunch of people have tried it uh, maybe that's not the use case that works in india we don't have long drives where people are sitting in silence they're noisy whatever the reason may be so i'm skeptical there is unmet demand to put it in you know the second is that we are all able to access international like there are so many as many hands went up on game of thrones ads and this is of course the dynamic of this room but the fact is there is so much international content available that may be fulfilling whatever there is demand there is right and this is always going to be like you know we joke sometimes like the facebook of india's facebook the google of india's google we haven't uh, uh we because of our english speaking whatever policy choices and all of that we are in a place where a lot of the cutting edge demand is already met by global suppliers i think these are the boring reasons why i would also like to say you know nobody gives us money to do this so that's one big reason why all right we have time for exactly one more question or i'm going to take closing remarks yes uh, the lady in the hi there um there was a very interesting remark made about pokemon go and how overnight it just became a sensation i mean i think what's really important is the fact that it was tapping on nostalgia marketing right um it was in a generation and and the objective of that was at the end of the day to revive nintendo and to see how we can take it on a whole new sphere um we spent the last hour talking about the importance of technology in news where the reality is that most brands look towards institutional organization like the media on how to tell really good stories mm-hmm. um we've forgotten to talk about storytelling and the fundamentals of that to be honest with you and uh, from the panelists i would love to hear that in the media space that you are and as responsible media institutions don't you think that you're really getting glued into technology and the focus of technology whereas you should be really reviving the conversation of good storytelling let me throw that question to francesca you did tell the story of solitary confinement and that's the award winning uh, yeah. virtual reality show one, one of our one of our one of your many award winning <laughs> pieces um, and that is a compelling story of what it feels like to be in solitary confinement so francesca i'm i'm doing a longer talk i think in about an hour which i'm really hoping um i can talk much more about story and creativity and use of interactivity and use of different environments so if you're interested in that please come along to that um we've been experimenting in a lot of first person storytelling i was really interested in what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes and so um we've spent the last 2 years looking at what it like looks like or actually what it feels like run looks like um to be in the position of um an american inmate in a solitary confinement cell and the psychological implications what it's like to be a baby and have your eyes develop and the colors develop um what it what it's like to be on a crime scene and be the forensics expert those kind of things and we've experimented some of them have been more successful than others but we've like the actual aim over the last 2 years has been very much around what can this do for us in terms of storytelling what are techniques that work what don't does filming work better than um animation all of those kind of things and hugely interesting and i think really promising as well for like what it can bring to journalism i do not want to use it as a fad and like when we think of stories the first question is does this have to be virtual reality because if it doesn't it should be a film it should be a podcast because it's really expensive making vr not that many people are going to watch it so there has to be a, a kind of critical reason for you to be making it in that form all right my last question same question to all the panelists i think we have about 2 3 minutes left 
So organizations like Bloomberg, Washington Post, AP and the others have already started having robots write basic, admittedly easy data-driven stories about, I think this FIFA World Cup uh, had a few robot-written stories. Um, Bloomberg does it regularly for financial data because the number of variables are similar. So my question to you, and I would like the answer in the length of one tweet, this is your tweetable quote, does this mark the beginning of the end of the traditional journalist? No, but it would help journalists collect that data. You don't need to do, I'm going to go a little over a tweet. Uh, Tweets are 280 characters now, so go ahead. Um, so traditionally you had a lot of, <coughs> you had either interns or uh, folks on contract working to collect the data and then somebody is making meaning of this data and telling a compelling story. Now machines can collect that data for you, right? There's, there's a typical example of Foxport which ingested a whole bunch of uh, FIFA World Cup videos and could clearly segregate when a goal was scored and when a red card was flagged. And that you can get machines to do rather than get humans to spend their time with it. And that improves the level of journalism itself in, our, uh, in the way we see it. You, you get a lot of this data that you can start writing your company stories on rather than spending human capital. Francesca, the biggest threat to journalism comes from? I mean, I think that trying to fight technology is um, is impossible. So for us as journalists, it's about how we can utilize it to the most effect, simply. Samit, the biggest threat to journalism, machine learning, AI, is it going to render the traditional journalist sort of semi-relevant? Uh, not really. I don't think it will have any impact. Uh, I think it may make on the margin journalism impact more interesting by taking away the drudgery of the work uh, that uh, today requires, you know, identity of the test and so on. Um, I think you still need uh, whatever you are calling them, you know, like reporting new facts, bringing new facts um, into the public. Uh, I believe that will be because how long before we see a completely virtual news anchor who's not a real person who's completely <laughs> Sophia the robot being a news anchor? I hope never. Never argue with her editor and sort of be. I hope never. Uh, journalists are here to stay and I, I really hope they should. I, I think whether it's AI or VR, they're not your enemy. And I, I'll go back to what I said previously. If, if used responsibly, any kind of technology can be your friend. And as he said, you know, it can remove a lot of drudgery and can really inform your journalism. So AI is not a threat, it can be your friend if you use responsibility. I think that was a tweet. Vikas, Samir, Francesca and Chirdeep, thank you very much. Thank you members of the audience for giving us a patient listening. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. Catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport. Visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.